Welcome to McKinsey Talks Talent, featuring McKinsey leaders and talent experts Brian Hancock and Bill Shanninger. I'm Lucia Rahili. Today, our latest research on the future of work, how COVID-19 has changed workforce trends, who is at risk, and how best to prepare. Over the eight countries that we study in this report, it's 100 million people are going to need to find the skills to do different occupations in the growing fields. That's economist Susan Lund talking about the unsettling number of workers whose jobs are likely to change post-pandemic. Susan is a McKinsey partner and co-author of a new McKinsey Global Institute report, The Future of Work Beyond COVID-19, which you can find at mckinsey.com. Susan, we are so happy to have you today. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. I'd like to start by asking you to walk us through some of the main findings of the report, and then we can open to broader discussion with Bill and Brian. Uh, We published quite a bit prior to the crisis about trends in the future of work. What did we do differently in this research to take COVID-19 specifically into account? In this work, we looked at how this massive disruption over the last year has accelerated some trends and actually created new trends. Over the last year, we thought about one element of work that we never really considered much before, and that was physical proximity. Mm -hmm. Uh, Suddenly, it mattered whether your job involved interacting with a lot of different people in a close space, whether you were indoor, whether you had to be on site or not. Three quarters of the jobs in the economy, you can't work at home because you're either working in person with, say, in a hospital setting with patients or with special machinery that you need to be on site. And what did you discover about work areas that face disruption as a consequence of high physical proximity? So we actually quantified for 800 different occupations how close somebody works to other people and these five dimensions. So if you think about healthcare, a lot of the work is in the medical care arena. Those are the doctors and nurses working directly with patients. But they're administrative people, and they're in an office-based computer setting. There are pharmacists and laboratory technicians who work in um, a venue that we call indoor production and warehousing. The pandemic has impacted people in different work arenas very differently. Do you want to speak to those? So of the four work arenas that we think are going to see the most change long-term, the first one is on-site customer interaction. So those would be salespeople in retail, could be tellers in banks, Um, It's people who deal with a lot of other people face-to-face. No surprise, companies have thought about how to use technology to transform that work. A lot of interactions have gone online. And even when we go to interact in person, we'll use something like self-checkout in retail so that we don't have to interact. And this desire for contactless customer care is something that we think will continue. Again, not surprisingly, travel and leisure has been wildly disrupted. Jobs where people are facing large crowds of people in an airport, in a movie theater, a lot of work in hotels and in restaurants. And again, there's been a shift to digital where you can do that. And long term, we see 
you know, a decline in demand for many of those roles. Millions of frontline tend to be low-wage service workers. So that's going to be a very different future of work for that set of occupations. And speak to how you think those um, those disruptions will precipitate job loss. One is a shift to e-commerce and other, say, curbside pickup, delivery of food, online banking, digital payments, streaming entertainment. So uh, there were a lot of new users to all these digital technologies. People who, after being cooped up at home for a year, have tried these. And when we do consumer pulse surveys to see what people intend to do after the pandemic, you always have to take it with a grain of salt because who knows you know, how we'll feel. But anywhere from 50 to 75% of respondents typically say they're going to continue to use this new way of interacting. So for instance, I started doing online yoga streaming at home. I don't know if I'll go back to the yoga studio. Mm-hmm. So the, a lot of those shifts to digital mean that going forward, there are going to be fewer jobs in, say, travel and leisure and, and the on-site customer care. Susan, Brian here. A lot of people are hopeful that a rebound happens at some point. Once the rebound happens, you know, are some of the frontline jobs still not going to come back to the same level? And if so, can you provide an example or two of what kind of jobs may have gone away forever or at least gone down forever as a result of the pandemic? That's a great question. So when you think about travel, I think you have to separate out personal leisure travel and tourism from business travel. So a Caribbean vacation can't be taken over Zoom. But business travel, actually, we can do a lot over video conferencing that we didn't think we could before. And even, say, the diehard salesmen who claimed there was no way they couldn't you know, go out and meet the clients and press the flesh and build trust have found that actually you can do an extraordinary amount over video conferencing. I know of one company that just completed a major transaction across an ocean worth a couple billion dollars, and they never once physically set sight. And indeed, there's productivity gain. Suddenly, we're not all on airplanes all the time, so you can actually see more customers. And so I think it's business travel that our colleagues in the travel and logistics practice think might decline, say, 20% permanently, you know, getting on an airplane for one meeting, that's going to go away. And then that will have knock-on effects for hotels, for restaurants, for rideshare, and of course, for airlines. I'm wondering if you could bifurcate to luxury service versus a commodity service, you know, fast food, the kiosk or in play. But if you were to go to like a five-star restaurant, would you really want a robot serving you? And I I do wonder if part of the experience is the human interaction. Are we just seeing a further delineation between we're going to pay for a higher-end service, know it comes to the higher margin, but probably still expect some level of human interaction? Or, you know, has that blurred now? No, I think you're absolutely right. Um, I often get this question. Are you saying we're not going to go to restaurants? We're going to go to restaurants. And when you go out for fine dining and an experience, you will have a white person. Although I have to say there are countries like Japan where they're very fond of those humanoid mobile robots and you actually see servers in restaurants. But apart from, say, a cultural preference for the robot, I completely agree with you. 
that at the higher end of the price point, you're going to continue to see in person. But for a lot of the services that have been commoditized or for some of the lower end price points, you won't. I think about even say something like salons and massages. I mean, uh, sales of the home sort of massaging chairs and various contraptions to give yourself a massage have taken off during this pandemic. Susan, what about education? I've got five, six-year-olds in the front of my apartment right now engaging in Zoom school. Where where does online education fall on the spectrum of disruption? Um, Well, first of all, um, my heart goes out to you, (laughs) Lucia. Um, Although I have to say, I was witnessing a similar class of actually first graders. And it just made me smile to hear one giving another one IT advice saying, you just X out this this window and <laughs> they're going to be... I think um, we're living digitally native right there in that example. Yeah. <laughs> right? Soon they'll be giving me IT advice. Yeah. Exactly. It's uh, adorable. But Look, I think that we differentiate between what can theoretically be done remotely and what can be done remotely with equal productivity. And education of K through 12 is one of those activities that in theory can be done remotely and has been, but there's accumulating evidence that there's a big loss in learning, particularly for low-income students, where this has really exposed the digital divide of many Americans and many people, even in rich countries that don't have access to broadband or don't have the IT equipment. And this is going to be an imperative going forward to fix the digital divide. So in that case, you know, I think that where clearly remote is inferior, we're going to open up schools as soon as we can. Now, the same is not true for corporate training. A lot of companies are saying they're going to move a lot of what had been in-person corporate training to online, because for adults, we can do just fine online and actually learn. So I think it'll be very different for young kids versus maybe people already in the workforce. Help us understand what this means in terms of numbers. How many workers do we expect to have to change jobs So overall, we don't project unemployment rates because there are too many variables that go into that. So when we look out over a decade, over 10 years, we would expect that the economy will be growing and that there will be jobs, but the mix of jobs is going to be very different. So we've already talked about declines in demand for customer service roles, for food service. We see a lot less demand for some of the basic office work, like administrative assistants and bookkeepers, Um, continuing automation in factory settings and, you know, production facilities, Uh, but then growth in healthcare and STEM and management and creatives. So what this means is that people currently in some of these occupations that are set to see lower demand in the future, they're going to need to think about getting out of that occupation and moving to one of the growing jobs. But that's going to require really a big step up in skills. So in the United States, we project there are about 17 million people that are in some of these jobs that are going to see less demand over the eight countries that we study 
in this report, it's 100 million people are going to need to find the skills to do different occupations in the growing fields. It's a daunting number. Job displacement at that kind of scale can feel genuinely destabilizing. So let's open up and talk about what we can do when you talk about stepping up skills. What do you mean? What it means is that people need opportunities to think about switching careers and learning a different set of skills. One of the things I'd say, and Brian and Bill definitely know this, is that even when, say, a job within a company remains, often the activities that that person is doing going forward will be different. But for the people switching, it will require businesses in some instances helping retrain workers. It will require educational institutions to think about how we're preparing young people entering the workforce and the need for some kind of technical skill or credential if not a college degree, going into the workforce. And then there's a role for government because all governments do spend money on workforce training and sometimes it's not very effective. The idea where someone in role just needs to get better, let's say upskilling, but it's like it's it's on a migratory path, right? You're, you're kind of still on the same curve as opposed to they need to learn something completely different. And Brian and I have spent a lot of time with our teams and in our different settings trying to look at this. It just seems like the efficacy rate, the success rate of real reskilling, something completely new, is still abysmally low. And I'm wondering if if you have any thoughts on that, because I do worry that otherwise we'll have like a lost generation where there are only opportunities to go into the gig economy or go down market from where they previously were. Yeah, it is daunting. And I think that in the upskilling journey that you mentioned for people staying current in their current role or moving up, you know, a lot of that happens on the job and it happens within your current employer. But there are companies who will have lower headcount, at least for the current positions they have. Or there may be opportunities to shift to a different occupation in a different geographic location. I was just talking to a chief human resource officer of a, of a health insurance company today. And she mentioned, you know, we try to reskill and offer new opportunities, but it often requires a geographic move and people aren't willing or can't uproot their family. Maybe their spouse is working or they're taking care of elderly parents. And this is where I think educational institutions and the government come in when you're in a situation where you need to help someone shift occupations. But Bill, I think I'm inherently more optimistic than you are. Um, If I think about a nonprofit organization like uh, Generation that McKinsey and others started to take out-of-work youth and in a matter of weeks teach them the basic skills they need to get into a job say, a certified nurse assistant, which is the lowest rung of nursing. And we've also seen innovative programs like some of the early college prep high schools that tend to be more of a four- to six-year program where someone earns a high school degree but at the same time then continues on to get an associate degree with some technical skills. And these schools are set up in very disadvantaged neighborhoods, and they have amazing rates of graduation and are graduating uh, students who are then ready to actually go get a job because they have some technical skills. So 
I see some hope that we can do this, certainly for the next generation, and maybe even for people, you know, currently in their jobs. But it does raise the question that if you can't do that, then what kind of income support mechanisms are we going to need? I buy that. I mean, for sure, the great divide of even those who maybe are, you know, in high school now or a little bit outside of high school, digitally native versus those that in their working career have gone from analog to digital. And there just there just does seem to be a divide in terms of the pliability of skills. I'm not saying it's a foregone conclusion. It just seemed harder, you know. For the, and we, we risk we risk having a bit of a lost generation if we're not careful. And frankly, I would rather spend money trying to create training programs and supporting people who voluntarily leave their job to go into say a three month training program and then come out the other end. Remember, we need welders, we need need electricians, we need master carpenters. Like, it's not just computer programmers that are needed in the economy. So I do think it's a big enough tent. There should be a place for everyone if we can figure it out. Yeah, this is Brian. Let me pick up on that because I I think the problem when you look at it from a theoretical level of reskilling is daunting. How can I reskill this magnitude of people? into positions that are needed most. But when you start to segment the workforce, it all of a sudden starts to be, at least for certain segments, something that feels more reasonable. Reskilling IT workers to work in the cloud is a targeted set of skills. It requires real retraining and reskilling. It's not just a matter of upskilling, you know, but you can see the pathway there. In those early career jobs, that gives you the opportunity to start over in the entry-level rung of another industry that is growing. So you may have moved from retail to healthcare. And I think the opportunity when you get at that focus level is to, you know, how do you better express the skills that you learned working in retail? How do you make them more transparent and relevant uh, to the healthcare provider so that you've got a shorter training journey, a shorter path to you know, promotion and success within healthcare, but you are for younger workers, you know, maybe you have to change. Susan, uh, presumably the time frame for reimagining the workforce post-pandemic is immediate, right? It is absolutely now. Mm-hmm. Very few are thinking that we're going to go back to the way life was a year ago, a year plus ago. Uh, most are, are planning on some form of hybrid work from home for those that can do it, but they're thinking about it strategically, which people should work together on site, when, who can work from home, how often, what role does digitization play in this instead of just planning for the jobs of today? How do you include plans for jobs of the future? Everybody's working through it and thinking about what pilots do they want and what stance do they want to take. But the time is absolutely now to be making these plans. So there's planning for hybrid work environments where possible. Have you also seen companies accelerate their reskilling initiatives during the pandemic? Yeah, there are some companies that know they want to have more remote work. They're thinking about reducing office space and reconfiguring it. There are other companies that are using this to think about the employee experience more broadly. Given what we've all been through, you know, what does it take to have an amazing employee value proposition to 
attract talent. And that might be some flexibility on location or days on site. And for employees who have to be on site, how do we think about their experience? Other companies are putting the customer first, thinking about what is our customer experience going forward? Now that we've started to use different channels to reach our customers, what expectations do they have? And then they're working back from that. So I think that there are many different angles into this, but what it really leads to is I want to be clear, this is not just um, an HR issue, that this is really about company strategy. It hits the finances. So the CFO cares a lot. Uh, Technology is a core part to making any of these changes work. So it's really a cross-functional top team joint decision to be plotting out how to reimagine work. Do you think there's anything lost in a hybrid, partially remote work environment that has to be managed for? I would say if you do it right, you won't have lost anything. You'll have gained productivity. You will have gained engagement because you will be intentional about making sure that people are together to build the culture, bring new people on board, do the innovation and brainstorming, build trust with new people. But it's going to take trial and error. Do you think remote work presents any opportunities for vulnerable demographics? Brian, maybe you'll take that one. I'm thinking of the recent report you co-authored on race in the U.S. workplace that looked in part at geographic distribution of Black workers. I do think that remote work opens up a significant opportunity on the diversity front. You know, our research showed that looking at the experience of Black workers in the United States, you know, Black workers aren't equally concentrated across the United States. In fact, 60% of Black workers live in the South. And if you look at cities like Houston or Atlanta that have uh, large populations of educated Black workers, you know, if you're a company thinking, how can I get a more diverse technical workforce? You know, people like ClassPass, which moved from New York City to Montana, and from Montana, recognized, hey, maybe I should have a more diverse development team, and actually went looking for cities where they could be located where there would be a more diverse pool of talent. And so they're keeping their base of operations in Montana, but opening a satellite in Houston, in part because of the diversity of the workforce in Houston. So I think you are seeing companies start to say, hey, now that we know we don't all have to be in headquarters together, and we can start thinking about having more remote work locations, I think then they're saying, well, hey, since mobility is at an all-time low, or at least in a 50-year low uh, in the United States, why don't, instead of expecting diverse talent to move to us, why don't we open up a hub in a more diverse location? Susan, we've seen disproportionate impact of job loss on diverse populations during COVID. Do we expect that to continue post-pandemic? Well, I think a lot of the jobs that are going to be in declining demand are disproportionately held by um, diverse populations. And it's young people, it's women, it's those without a college degree and ethnic minorities. And so companies are going to have to really try to intentionally combat some of the regressive impacts of this pandemic if they want to continue moving forward on their diversity and inclusion goals. Mm -hmm. Bill, how do you think that intersects with the emphasis on purpose that has been invigorated during this period? 
One example that I was thinking of is in New York City has done it, and I think other cities have done it, where they've gotten people who are mid-career switchers to become teachers. And then they set up a, a system whereby they can get their, their teaching certificate relatively quickly. I think if you have something like that where you can set up to say, I've not done this before, but I'm passionate about it, and I'd like to get in it. We're going to see an exodus in a lot of healthcare slots. Maybe we have you know, mid-career people switching into nursing or other affiliated healthcare roles. I think all those things would be great so long as the person has agency. And they're choosing to go into it. So then like the, the re-education, the reskilling, if you will, is choice. And at the end of that is something that they really want to do that they're passionate about. If it's not that, I worry quite a bit about the uptake and, and it becoming a bit forced, right? And, I, and I, I just don't think that's going to work very well. On the flip side, when we think about, you know, particularly women and people who are in caregiver roles, I think we've learned also a rather significant lesson just even about our own culture. The idea that work can go home without meaningful boundaries, we've discovered that we've run people into the ground after almost a year. You know, needing to be teacher and caregiver and partner and mom, notably women, because our culture disproportionately leans on women to be in the caregiving roles. I think we found out that actually sometimes that space provided by a workplace might in fact just be a good thing. Now we just have it can't be, it can't be a binary switch off or on. We need to find some level of flexibility in it. I'm hopeful that we've learned from that. I think, Bill, if I can pick up on that, you hear a lot of organizations talking about purpose. And then you, as you were thinking about the workplace experience, you know, how are we making sure that we're hitting those moments that matter, the onboarding moment, the review, the difficult conversation with the manager? How do we think about managing that human interaction better? Or how do we think about from an inclusion perspective or about mental health? and the balance that people have between their home and work lives. Now there's been an increasing pressure due to COVID, a start of an openness to talk about it. You could look at any of those one trends individually, but collectively, I think there's a real opportunity to use this moment to talk about what's really human and what are the connections that matter. And as we're redesigning work on the backside of COVID, you know, having that holistic focus on the human versus each of the individual elements, I think will you know, help distinguish who does this really well versus who doesn't. Bill, you invoked digital pliability most frequently of younger workers, digital natives versus older workers. But many younger workers must also be filled with trepidation about the pace of upheaval and, and investing in skills that maybe will rapidly become obsolete. Any recommendations for students or younger folks who right now may be thinking about how to future-proof their own career trajectories? Well, it's a good question. Um, you know, it's interesting. I'm, I'm 51, and in the most portion of my life, there's been a video game around. And not, not that having a video game is synonymous with being uh, digitally native, but it's around. that's about the out marker of the Gen Xers of folks that have always had gadgets. As you get younger, the digital stuff has just always been there, right? So it's less daunting. But other things can be daunting. Novelty for many people, particularly those that feel at risk, or the purpose of work is economic primarily. There's always a bit of anxiety or fear there. So anytime there's newness, there's risk of failure. With failure then comes like very real life outcomes like rent and food and things like that. Anything that can make, make a person more viable, more resilient, more adaptable to a changing work environment, the better. And so there, some of the skills are more like how to be a good employee, 
how to represent yourself well, how to make yourself more open and understanding how to apply learning. Learning to learn is a thing, right? Really being able to be open to it and adapt and see how it'll apply. I think those things would be invaluable, actually, really invaluable. And in many cases, it's folks who've not had particularly good education experiences. So it, it can't feel like just school. You know, it has to feel like an investment in them. And in those cases, I think the pivoting towards real lifetime learning and employability, recognizing that the reason for doing it is livelihood, right? To make like life easier. Great. Let's call it what it is then, right? Helping you make sure that you can have meaningful employment. I think we do well to, to position it that way. Yeah. I, I also think as we do that, though, we need to make sure that we have an expansive view on what skills are going to be required. Because I think it's much more than just the technical skill that leads to the livelihood. I think increasingly there are skills like working effectively in a team, social and emotional skills. How do we train people in those? And how do we be as deliberate in that as we are in the hard skills? And that can go back to the education system. That can also go to, hey, my entry-level job in a retailer I'm part of a team. I have the opportunity to lead a team meeting at the beginning of a shift. Can we document that team-based side, that leadership side? Those skills are going to be as important, if not even more important in a shifting world, than the specific technical skill that you may pick up from a 12-week boot camp or a community college. One of the interesting dynamics of, of, let's say, potential employees who have grown up largely in a social media environment the method of interaction is so unbelievably different than you would have had even 10, 20 years ago for employees. The idea of just talking to the people in front of you, not texting, having a difficult conversation that you couldn't just immediately evacuate by you know, hitting the red button on the phone. The speed with which communicating over your phone or an iPad or one of those devices allows you to send off the flame that is not in any way governed, thoughtful, or filtered. All the things that social media allows, which is an immediacy, a gratification of emotion meets action, none of those things translate well to the complexities of a work environment where you have to work and interact with people, in some cases really different to you. Yeah, let me build on that because we've now talked about socio-emotional skills like teamwork as well as technical skills. I think the real sweet spot for everybody, it's actually going to be the combination. So it's really not, I think, soft skills or hard skills, but it's really complementing what you don't have with that other. And sometimes people say, you know, it's no longer STEM, it's STEAM, where you're going to add art in there. So creativity is another one we haven't talked about yet. But people who could develop multiple skill sets overlapping, that's going to be the real sweet spot going forward. We've talked a lot about the potential challenges that will need to be navigated in the post-pandemic future. That can feel a bit daunting for folks, and there's anxiety about being part of that lost generation that Bill alluded to. I'd like to ask each of you, what are you most excited or optimistic about in the post-pandemic future? I think that the pandemic has gotten the world out of a rut. So there were many um, norms and practices in the workplace that have been smashed. Um, We've seen a flattening of hierarchies with our Zoom Hollywood Square meetings. You know, the CEO might be in the bottom left. We've seen people's dogs and kids 
we've seen companies work incredibly fast, first to get everyone remote, make sure they're safe, and then adapt to customers that now you need to interact with digitally. Things we thought would take years have been implemented in a matter of weeks. And if we can retain that as we move ahead and think about how to address some of the challenges coming out of the pandemic with the workforce and the number of people who have to transition to different occupations, I think we'll be in great shape. Brian, what about you? You know, I'm I'm most excited by the momentum starting to look in a real way about, you know, how do we address the skills gaps and how do we, you know, think about career opportunities in a more segmented way. So I think about the Markle Foundation and the Rework America Alliance, uh, of which McKinsey is a part, along with uh, a number of other leading companies. And they're saying, hey, let's see if we can give better data-backed tools to frontline workforce coaches, people that are helping people find a job to say, you know what? This career ladder is more like a stepladder. There's not going to be a lot of growth But this one over here looks like a real career ladder where there are multiple levels. And I think as we're seeing more and more organizations start to think about how to use that data and then build off of those insights, it'll make some of the transitions we've been talking about here not necessarily easier, but more informed. Bill, bring us home. We have an opportunity to say, as an organization, can we reground on the purpose of the institution? Why does this thing exist? Many have failed during this time. And so if we're fortunate enough to still exist, why? What is the point? And then to take that and engage our employees who now have real agency, can choose to opt in or opt out, and say, does this align with your sense of purpose? And help individuals to do it. If we start from a grounding of they don't have to be here, they have choice, maybe we have a higher likelihood of it just being more rewarding for everyone. That would be one. And then on presence, I'm hopeful that after having been locked up for the better part of, you know, a year, year and a half, we don't ever take being in each other's presence for granted again. So much of work is social. And we've been denied that. There is just no substitute. And so that we make our travel purposeful, we make our meetings purposeful, but we actually remember a time when we couldn't be in each other's presence. And we can maybe sit with that a little bit. Fantastic. Let's close there. Susan, thanks so much for joining us. It was great to have you. Thank you. My pleasure. That was Brian Hancock and Bill Shanninger. For more, subscribe to us on your favorite audio player or visit McKinsey.com. And if you have questions for Brian and Bill, write to us at McKinseyTalksTalent at McKinsey.com. We'd love to hear from you. Be well.